This morning we're moving into, um, we're still in the Red Letter Study, but we're moving into the Sermon on the Mount. And as I mentioned last uh, Sunday, we did the Sermon on the Mount itself alone about a year and a half ago. I went into a lot of detail then. I don't want to go into the same detail in the Sermon on the Mount section, which is Mark 5, 6, and 7. Uh, but I want to hit it so that we don't just skip it as we move through this Red Letter Study, the words of Jesus. But we're going to hit it more at an overview level, kind of topical, and we're going to dig into the main themes that we have been developing in this Red Letter Study for these past few months. What is Jesus really trying to say? What's his main objective? How does what he teach us relate to that main objective? How can we re-understand it so that that central teaching is really kind of hitting us right in the face and we understand where it is that he's, where it is that he's trying to take us? So the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, it's, uh, it's the mother load of red letters. It's just all red letters for three solid chapters. You know, it's just nothing but the words of Jesus and this teaching supposedly from a hillside or a mount. Um, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it really encapsulates everything that Jesus is about. It's, it's a masterpiece, really. I like to think of it as those nesting dolls, you know, those Russian nesting dolls, one doll inside another. You're familiar with those, right? And so you've got the Bible, and then if you open up the Bible, inside the Bible is the New Testament. You open up the New Testament and got the Gospels. Open up the Gospels, you got Matthew. Open up Matthew, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. And then open up the Sermon on the Mount, and you've got the Lord's Prayer right at the core. And what you kind of have is more and more of a concentrated central message. It's all contained right there in the Lord's Prayer itself, which is right in the center of Matthew 6, right in the middle of the sermon. But the sermon itself, I mean, if you just had that alone, just had that piece on your desert island, you could do just fine in terms of knowing everything that Jesus is about. Just this one piece. Now, did Jesus really deliver this sermon exactly as Matthew has it? on one day on a hillside? Well, probably not. And I hate to burst your bubble if that was your, your cherished belief. But all the teachings that, that are present in the Sermon on the Mount are scattered throughout Luke's Gospel at different places, different localities, and different times. And so what most scholars believe now about the Sermon is that as Jesus was teaching, people were taking notes there was probably a written early sayings gospel that has not survived, but that was incorporated especially into Matthew and Luke because it's not present in Mark in this, in this formulation. But there could have been an early sayings gospel. Some of the, uh, the scholars call it Q, which is uh, short for quelle, when, which in German means source. And so as he was teaching, you know, those who could write were maybe taking notes, or it was just oral tradition. People were repeating what he said over and over and over again. And then some 30 years to 40 years after the crucifixion, when the Gospel of Matthew was written, all of that was compiled and brought into, and Matthew organized it in the way that we have here. Either way that it goes, it's brilliant. It's brilliantly constructed. It has a theme. It has a structure to it. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is just that perfect repository of Jesus' teaching. So that's what we're jumping into here. The saints gospel that was probably even an early catechism. So as they were bringing new people into the faith, they used the Sermon on the Mount 
this early saints gospel as the repository of everything that Jesus was about and everything that they were going to be about as followers. And of course it pinpoints Jesus' main objective. What is Jesus' main objective? What is it that he's really trying to do with his whole life and his whole teaching? It seems to me that he's trying to simply show us the Father. Who is this Father? Who is this God? What is he really like? And how does Jesus do this? Well, first of all, he's modeling it. He's living it. We've talked about the healing stories that, that over the last few weeks of how he always leads with acceptance, always leads with relationship, always leads with touch before any of the, the ritual requirements are fulfilled. He touches before healing. He forgives before there is any making of amends or any ritual cleanliness. He accepts before again there is any change of direction. This is Jesus showing us who this Father of His is. He says that He and the Father are one. If you see me, you see the Father. He's showing us. And then He's also teaching the principles that stand behind that. Kind of like Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel continuously, use words where necessary. This is Jesus living the gospel, but also teaching it, teaching the principles that stand behind it. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, He's making people ready to engage the journey themselves. Jesus' way is not something that can be passively just watched or intellectually understood. It has to be lived out. We actually have to do the things that Jesus is doing. He says that over and over again. He's making people ready to be able to engage their own journey. But before he can get through to them or us or anybody at all, the first thing that we talked about last week that he needs to do is to shock us out of our minds. He needs to present us with things that our minds cannot process so that we will stop trying to think through them. To deconstruct everything that we think we know, to deconstruct our core beliefs, to deconstruct our worldview, because that really is the limitation of our ability to see truth as truth is. But we are certain that we understand something or know it. That becomes a filter through which we see reality. So we don't see reality directly. We see the filter. Anything that comes through the filter looks like what we already believe. But if we can loosen our grip on the filter, loosen our grip on the worldview, then we can get little peaks at moments of what really is in front of us. This is what Jesus is systematically trying to do. He presents us with the paradox, presents us with a seeming contradiction so that our minds can't process through it and we need to experience something at a deeper level. This is Jesus' teaching style. Remember, never answers a question, answers a question with a question or a story or some sort of paradox that needs to be processed at a different level. The hallmarks of Jesus' way that he's trying to teach us are also paradoxical, also taking everything we think we know and turning them upside down. Jesus' way is relational and it's not legal. And that's completely opposite to the Jews of his day, but it's also opposite to us. Well, who are we kidding? We still are looking for rules to follow. We're still looking for formulas to be able to obey so that we can unerringly go where we want to go, hit the outcomes we want to hit. But he's saying it's relational. It's not. It's not legal. It's not about performance. It's not about what we do in order to gain acceptance. We already have that. 
It's about understanding the relationship that we already have. And secondly, it's about abundance and not scarcity. It's not about competition. It's not about us trying to carve out what we need out of somebody else's hide. It doesn't work that way. With God, there's a different economy. With God, there is everything that could possibly be. And it's all here, and it's all now, and it's never withheld. All we have to do is realize that the table is set, and we can eat. You don't have to keep processing life through that zero-sum game type of mentality. But do you see how this runs counter to everything that we experience as human beings? Everything that we've been taught? Everything that society and church teaches us? Third, it's experiential and not intellectual. As I just said, this is not a passive undertaking. We can't just think about it. We can't just watch it. It has to be undertaken. It's experiential. It's not intellectual. And even more so, it's not even rational. We want to logicalize it. We want to understand it. We want to break it down into digital numbers so that we can control it. But it resists all that. The spiritual way is like the wind, Jesus says. Don't know where it's coming from. Don't know where it's going. Can't see it. But you can see its effect. Always trying to break us out of the stranglehold our minds have over us. And lastly, it's here now and it's not there then. And this is another one that we Christians especially now, ancient Jews, not so much of a problem because Jews to this day don't think about the afterlife. They know they can't know anything about it, so they focus here and now. If they can get this life right, if they can really immerse and engage into life now and find God's presence here now, salvation to a Jew is spiritual liberation here and now. To be liberated, to be freed, to be connected, to be present. Now we, modern Christians, of course, Western Christians, we're all about the afterlife. All our reward exists on the other side of the threshold of death. And so we've got another mental gymnastic to do here. To realize what Jesus is saying, it's all about here now. It's not about the afterlife. It's not about the future. If we can't find it here, we won't find it there or then. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And all of this together means that Jesus' way and the Sermon on the Mount is not rational. It's not even ethical. When you look at some of the teachings that we're going to be going through in Matthew 5, it's not ethical. It confounds our minds. It confounds the way that we think. This all should go. And this is the problem the church has had with the Sermon on the Mount for 2,000 years. They don't know what to do with it. The church has had trouble interpreting it. The church, What does the church do with it? You know, you, the problem is Jesus' way it is so micro-focused rather than macro-focused. It's focused on individual hearts, not on groups. So you can't hang a church on it. You can't hang an institution on it. If you tried to really implement what Jesus is teaching in a group setting, you would have nothing but anarchy. That's why the church has turned to Paul. The Western church is really built on Paul's teaching, not so much on Jesus' teaching, which is a huge thing to keep in mind. Jesus is dealing with individuals. And what an individual can do is different than what a group needs to do in order to survive. The group needs to be based on justice. The individual can be based in mercy and compassion. And this is where Jesus is focusing his efforts. He's trying to prepare our soil 
right? For a breakthrough into the life of kingdom, which is so different than the life that we experience every day physically. We need to put the two together. It's not either or. It's both and. It's always both and. But we need a balance between the two. If we can live this physical life under the rules that present to us by society, by family, by relationship, but at the same time see this other there there that Jesus is trying to show us that operates under completely different principles, then we can begin to live in kingdom, which is what his message is all about. And remember, this kingdom is not heaven of the afterlife. This kingdom is the quality of life that we can have right here and right now when we have broken through to presence and understood the oneness that undergirds everything around us. Now, this can only be lived by people who know that they're already forgiven, who know that they're already accepted, and who know that they're already loved. That allows us to be fearlessly vulnerable Before we know these things, before we know that we're forgiven and accepted and loved, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this vulnerability that is necessary is way too threatening to be able to simply accept and acquiesce to. And so what he's trying to get across is the true nature of God by showing it in his own life so that we can know this isn't something we have to earn. It already is. And only in vulnerability can there be connection. Until you're willing to drop your defenses and let yourself really be seen as you are, how in the world are you really going to have a relationship with anybody else if you're constantly defended, if you're constantly projecting what you think is necessary for you to be accepted and approved and loved? This is the way it works. We talked about Jesus not saving us from our sin, but saving us from shame, because shame is what keeps us from the connection. Shame is what keeps us in fear and keeps us doing sinful things, things that break down relationship, break down connection. This is where Jesus is is pushed and pushing constantly. The sermon is not about law. The sermon isn't giving us more law. Sometimes it looks like he's giving us more rules to follow, but it's not about law. The sermon is gospel. The sermon is good news. Under law, humans approach God through their own effort, right? We're going to follow these rules. We're going to do this. And if we do this, then God is going to respond in kind. It's a contractual arrangement. But gospel is about God approaching humans with a free gift. That's the good news. The good news is there is no bad news. He's approaching us with this free gift. And the gift is degreeless love. Love that has no distinction. Everyone is loved equally all the time. But this is something that our minds can't accept. It's not logical. It's not just, is it? In our minds, something is just if we've earned it. And if someone has not earned it, they don't get it. That's justice. But what about this love of God? Not just, not even ethical. Jesus is trying to prepare us to receive a gift that our minds cannot accept by challenging everything that we think we know, everything that we've been taught, everything that's been modeled in our culture. And if he can break through to us, if we can just let go enough that we can see, just even for an instant, 
a momentary glimpse of something else out there. That's the beginning. Now we can take the next step and the step after because something new has become possible. That's what Jesus is doing. That's the method in his madness, trying to give us these momentary glimpses of something else that is possible that we can't conceive of and are generally not taught in our culture, in our churches. And so as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing that he gives us is called the Beatitudes. Have you ever wondered why they're called Beatitudes? Because they're pretty, they're beautiful. The Beatitudes, that's how I've heard that before as well. You know, it's simple. Most of the books of the Bible are just named after the first line. A lot of songs that don't really have titles, they just name the song after the first line. And so the first word of the Beatitudes is blessed in our language. But it's Tobe in Aramaic, it's Makarios in Greek, and if you put it into Latin, it's Beatus. And so Beatus became the, the name of this first few verses of Matthew. Beatitudes comes from Beatus. It just means blessed, but blessed in a very specific way that we're going to have to understand here. What Jesus is doing in these first 10 verses or so is giving us a picture of the finished product. If the whole sermon is going to be about what it looks like to live in kingdom, that he's going to do that thing where typically if you're trying to get something across to somebody, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. Jesus is generally kind of doing that. In this first 10 verses or so, he's telling us, this is what you're going to get. This is what the finished product looks like. If you're going to build a birdhouse, here's the finished birdhouse. This is what it's going to look like. And he turns it around so you can see all the different facets of it. This is what he's doing. He's taking someone who's living in kingdom, a kingdom citizen, a kingdom person, who has become these attitudes and hold him or her up and turn them around so that you can see all the different facets, know what it is we're going for, know what it is that this looks like. What does this thing look like? And so we're just going to do an overview today of the, of the seven Beatitudes. There's an eighth sort of. We'll talk about that in a second. We're going to just do an overview and try to tie this to the main themes we've been talking about. So there's a formula here, right? Blessed are X, you know, these seven different or eight different um, characteristics of someone who's living in kingdom. Blessed are they, for they will. So that's going to be the formula that we're going to see for all of these. Now, the first thing we need to understand is this word blessed, because we think of it as being approved of by God or something like that. It's, it's really a lot more than that. Tobe is related to Taba. We've talked about Taba and Bisha in here in Aramaic. Taba is good, Bisha is evil, but not in the normal ways that we think of it as, as sort of an ethical imperative or, or completely diametrically opposed or in, in some kind of conflict with each other. Taba and Bisha literally mean ripe and unripe. So in an agrarian society, in a subsistence culture like these ancient Jews, the highest good would be something that nourished you, something that kept you alive, right? Something that's ripe. And something that is evil or bad is something that can't do that. It's no good for anything. It doesn't serve a function or a purpose. Tobe is related to Taba in that particular way. And so Tobe is blessed in the sense of ripeness, right? Goodness. It can also be translated as happy. You're happy if you're blessed, if you're Tobe. You're fortunate. You're enriched. You're whole. You're balanced. I've seen some uh, translations, congratulations to you, you know, because of your blessed. It's the idea of shalom, but shalom not just is simple peace, but shalom is 
the whole complete picture, the highest degree of completeness and, and, and fortune and health and, and wealth and everything that can possibly be. That's why Shalom is used as a greeting. All that to you. Tobe is like that. It is the wholeness or completeness of a person. So you are whole and complete if, right? Let's go ahead and read through them and just see what we've got. So they're on the, um, on the insert in your handouts. And uh, are you going to be putting them up there, buddy? He's got them. Look at that. So the first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's our formula. Tobey are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Each one of these is going to have a... Uh, a, a facet, a characteristic. So this first one is poor in spirit. Now this stumps a lot of people. Um, we're not going to take the time to actually do this, but often I'll ask and I'll just say, what does poor in spirit mean to you? So let me just ask it this way. When you hear the term poor in spirit, does that sound negative to you or does it sound positive to you? For how many of you does this sound negative? And for how many does it sound positive? Okay, a couple of you read ahead. But it sounds negative, doesn't it? Poor in spirit. Most people who hear it for the first time or have heard it all their lives and have never had it explained to them will think it means that someone who is um, really not very adept at spiritual principles doesn't have a good sense of spiritual awareness in their lives. That would be poor in spirit. And that's logical for us when we hear poor in spirit in English. But it turns out that poor in spirit, meskina ruh in Aramaic, is an idiom. And those of you who know what an idiom is, an idiom is a phrase in a language that you cannot understand by just defining the words in the phrase. It doesn't make any sense. It's a cultural agreement. It's raining cats and dogs. Now, we know that quadrupeds are not falling from the sky, right? It's raining very hard. But someone who's coming outside of our culture is saying, what in the world are you talking about? Poor in spirit is the same way. What poor in spirit really means is an attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. It means to be humble, right? It means to be self-effacing and unassuming and all those things. It means to have a sense of gratitude, even alongside your sense of dependence and vulnerability. It is really understanding your condition, your frail condition in life, but being grateful anyway, fearlessly vulnerable. That's poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to understand you don't possess the kingdom. You don't own the kingdom. You don't even enter the kingdom. Truly what you do is you become kingdom. It becomes a way of living life. It becomes a characteristic of your life. But these are the limitations of our language as we try to translate from one ancient Eastern language into a modern Western one. And so underneath each one of these is a paraphrase that I've done from the Aramaic understandings of these words. So, enriched, there is a way to translate Tobay. Enriched are those who live with a sense of dependence and vulnerability and gratitude. For the reign of God, of unity, is the same as this. No more, no less. And notice that the kingdom of heaven was translated as the reign of God. That's the closest we can come again. The kingdom really means the principles by which the king reigns and which the people resonate with. Enriched are those with a sense of dependence and vulnerability and gratitude for the reign of God of unity is the same as this, no more, no less. 
Well, the second beatitude, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Another seeming negative to us. Who wants to be mourning, right? We don't want that. How are we blessed when we're mourning? But happy are those who long to fill what is lacking in the lives around them, who are weak and broken from the intensity of this desire. They will hear God's voice and be strengthened and encouraged, and they will see the face of that for which they long. To mourn, Ebal in Aramaic, is to be put into confusion or put into turmoil. It's to wander and be longing for that destination that you're wandering around and not being able to see and not being able to connect, to long deeply, to be weakened from that longing. That is to put yourself willingly into a very precarious position, a very vulnerable position. But if you're not in mourning, it means that you never lost anything of value to begin with. So if you're mourning, it's because you really had connection, you really had love and relationship. And if you're willing to lean into that, to move through the grieving, to move through the process of wandering, you will literally see the face of that for which you long on the other side of that journey. That's what Jesus is saying. But notice the characteristics. Someone who is willing to be vulnerable enough to be in connection, willing to be hurtable because they're willing to be in connection. Another key element of kingdom. The third beatitude, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the gentle or if you're a King James-only person, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Same idea here, gentle, meek, lachika in uh, Aramaic. Literally, this is interesting, that word in Aramaic literally means to soften what is rigid inside. Don't you love that? To soften what is hard and rigid. You know, that, those, those roots of unforgiveness, perhaps, that's something like that, something that you're holding on to, soften that. It, it also has to do with being melted or bowing down or surrendered. And so when we do the, the paraphrase, fortunate are those who are not arrogant or domineering. They will partake in and have their place to stand and live richly. This idea of inheriting the earth, again, not about possession. It's about having your own place to stand. Whether it's your own patch of ground to farm so that you can live, whether it's your home, but it's having a place to stand, a place that is yours, a place that is solid under your feet. And those who are not arrogant or domineering, those who can move into relationship with others at that level, have that place to stand. They have that connection. Fourth Beatitude, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst, two words there, dafkanin and sain in Aramaic. A dafkanim is interesting. It, it recalls an infant because the, the image is uh, a mouth that is turning toward sustenance, turning towards something. You think of a baby who is turning themselves to their food. And then saying has to do with being parched inside to be dried out, inwardly dried out. And so this hunger and thirst here, if we do the paraphrase, healed are those who crave and passionately desire a good place with God. And they will find it and they will know that they have found it. Love that. So healed, another way to translate Tobe. The fifth beatitude, Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
thriving are those moved the other way, thriving, right? Are those moved to help someone in need? Moved to help someone in need. Turning feeling into action where they will experience the comfort they give. And so this idea of mercy or the merciful, lam ramane, it's compassion and pity and love, but it's compassion that is moved to action. It's not just enough to feel here. It's feeling that is deep enough that motivates into action, to actually do something. Kind of like James saying, hey, you know, what is it to say to someone, be warm and be felt if you're not going to give them anything, any clothing or any food. You know, faith without works is dead. This is compassion that is moved to action, that you actually move. And it comes out of the depths of your being, buried within Lamumane, Ram is actually the word for womb, a woman's womb. And the idea is that the love comes from that deep place and it's just like a fountain. It pours onto the child. This is the kind of compassion we're talking about here. But it is always moving the person to some sort of action. The sixth beatitude, Matthew 5 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So this idea of pure in heart, pure dot cane, and heart, lepon. So that cane is about consistent, uh, having a consistent center, a consistent place from which your life radiates. Okay? It's, uh, it's that vitality. It's that audacity, that boldness that comes from a place that's consistent. The, the heart is the center of all of that. And so to be consistent with that heart place is to have that audacity, have that connection. So congratulations to those whose innermost passions and desires are steadfast and free from anything that is false. They shall see God and God's unity everywhere they look. It's not about seeing God where you expect God to be in your prayer time, in church. It's about seeing God everywhere, even in the most insignificant, seemingly insignificant moments. If you have that consistency inside, if you keep showing up with that deep connection to your vital center, you will see God everywhere. And the seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, children of God. This idea of peacemaker is, is important for us to understand. When we think of a peacemaker, we think of someone who rides in on their white horse and stops a conflict. And it's all very public and it's all very spectacular. And we admire those people who can come in and they can either uh, mediate or, or they can, you know, use subtle, shuttle diplomacy or whatever they need to do to stop a conflict or they actually literally break up a fight. That's our idea of a peacemaker. But here, there's a different understanding. Shlama means peace. Shlama is peace in Aramaic, same as shalom in, in Hebrew. Lavdeh is the one who is committed to an ongoing action, committed to an ongoing effort. The image here is of a farmer or a gardener who shows up every morning, tilling the soil, weeding, doing everything that needs to happen for the plants and the crop to actually grow. It's that consistent showing up, that effort for wholeness and completeness. But it's done almost invisibly. How many of you really watched a farmer? How many really care what the farmer does? You just go to the produce aisle and pick what you want. 
But underneath that is someone who showed up diligently day in and day out and did everything that it took through the life of that harvest to be able to have the crop. This is the idea of the peacemaker, someone who is literally unseen but shows up, maybe even unrewarded, but committed to that kind of wholeness, that kind of connection. Whole and balanced are those who exert themselves, planting health and safety and understanding every season, year in and year out. In them, a place will be prepared for oneness. A channel will be dug for unity to flow. Very different. Each one of these giving us a lot of overlap here, a lot of similarities in many of them, but you could almost see Jesus just turning this person 360 degrees for us to see the entire shape, all of the characteristics, everything that is present. This eighth beatitude may not be a beatitude at all. Some scholars debate whether, even though it's in the same format, that it may not be one of the actual beatitudes. And it also contains probably a major mistranslation. The way it's normally translated into English for us is, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this worked very well, especially with the early church's theology of martyrdom, that we needed to be persecuted and we need to enter into the suffering of Jesus in order to be close and, of course, die for our faith and all of that. But the problem here is, is that it really doesn't fit with the other seven and the characteristics that Jesus is talking about. And the central word there that is translated as persecuted is radaf. But radaf can either mean to pursue or to persecute. So if we go the other way and we say, oh, I think this word really makes more sense in context to be pursue, then we can get right are those pursuing rightness and purity for their own sake. For the reign of God, the realization of unity is present in their lives. That fits so much more with everything that Jesus is saying. Is one or the other right? We can't know for sure. You know, the word can be translated either way. For my money, I like this one. You can choose whatever you like. All right? you, you have that ability to do that. Now, just having read through those, okay, and, and even as we, 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 we change the context and try to parse them and put them back into an Aramaic understanding, doesn't it sound as though Jesus is saying, if we do these things and act just this way, God is going to reward us? Isn't it sort of an if-then statement? You're blessed if you are these things, and then God will reward you with these things. But what's the problem with that? See, we're right back to performance. We're right back to pay to play if we look at it that way. See, I don't think Jesus is telling us that at all. The sermon teachings are not more law. It's not more rules because then we're right back to performance. And not only that, we're right back to scarcity. God is withholding all these things until we perform in the correct way and then they are gifted. But God never withholds anything. This is what Jesus is trying, talking about when he talks about an abundant life. Then if he withholds it and then just gives it away according to a performance, we're right back to law. What Jesus is really telling us is that God exists as the gifts that we seek. God is forgiveness. God is love. God is healing. God is grace, is salvation. 
It is all of those things. As we move into God's presence, that's what we get, and we can't get anything else because that's what God is all the way down to the core of his, her being. God exists as the gifts we seek. We, in doing these things, we, as in becoming these attributes that Jesus is talking about, we simply become ready and able to receive what is already here or not. It's not about doing something in order to passively be rewarded. It's about becoming ready to see. As we become more and more aligned ourselves with God's nature, as we take pleasure and delight and deepest purpose in the things that God takes pleasure and purpose and deepest delight in, as we become more aligned with God's nature, we become the gifts that we seek. We become it ourselves. It's not bestowed to us. We become these things because they're already here. This is such a sea change. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to break through in our heads. In truth, the Beatitudes are not just the picture of the finished product of someone who lives in kingdom. The Beatitudes are the picture of God's own nature, the Father's nature. In other words, God is poor in spirit. And that really bakes your noodle because we don't think of God that way. We don't think of God as unassuming. We don't think of God as self-effacing. We don't think of God as being the servant. But that's what he's telling us to do. That's what Jesus did. He washed his disciples' feet to try to show them, this is your Father. This is the God that you're trying to serve. He's serving you. And all we're doing is mirroring that. These Beatitudes are the picture of who our God is. And the more that we mirror that, the more we are coming into this alignment and we are becoming the gifts that we so deeply seek. We are only going to know God. We're only going to become free in that knowing when we begin to value who God is and not who we imagine God to be. But we don't do that as people. In our human and existential fear, what do we value most? We value power and we value possessions, don't we? Because that's where we imagine our security comes from. And let's face it, in the physical world, that is where your security can come from. It's only temporary, but it feels a lot better to have those zeros in your account than not. And to have some sort of control over your circumstances than not. That's what we value. That's why this is so counterintuitive. Why this seems so contradictory. And so what do we do? We remake God in the image of the humans that we respect and admire, don't we? We don't let God be God. We certainly don't want the God that Jesus is talking about. Because how is that God really going to save us? How is that God really going to be there when the chips are down? If that God is unassuming, gentle, meek, poor in spirit. And so we imagine God in the realm of the king's our physical kings, our political kings, our celebrities, those who are strong, those who are beautiful. That's who we imagine God to be. But if we really look at who Jesus is, when he said that I and the Father are one, that's who we're really talking about. Someone who is willing to be invisible, to be in the back of things. Who Jesus is is who the Father is. And who we must be if we want to be in connection 
is the same. If we want that truth, if we want that freedom, what Jesus is doing is giving us a list of attributes that make absolutely no sense to us, not logically. And they certainly don't scratch the itch of our need for security because of the fear that we have. And our mind is going to resist all the things. And so what Jesus is doing, like a Zen master, is trying to wake us up, trying to slap us upside the head. And when we come to him with a logical line of questioning to derail that, to stop it, and to try to deconstruct the way that we're looking at things, because the problem is in the way that we're thinking, not in not getting an answer to a question. And so he's standing everything that we think we know on its head, Everything that we hold dear for our survival, he's standing on its head. And he's reminding us that it is our attachment to our minds, the way we think. Attachment to power, attachment to possessions that is blocking the truth, blocking our ability to even see what is present right here and right now. Blocking this good news. We're constantly praying to God to give us this, to give us that. And you can almost imagine God slapping himself on the forehead and saying, the table's all set. Everything is in front of you. Take and eat. There's nothing more I can do. I have withheld nothing from you. And yet we're still praying for something. Let's look at this list again and just look at all of the attributes that we can list. And the question is, are you ready to accept this list of attributes? Uh, even more so, are you ready to try to adopt it in your life? The poor in spirit, what is that? That's humble vulnerable, dependent, submitted. There's a word we don't like. Accepting of life and life circumstances, but still grateful at the same time. Or in spirit. Those who mourn, empathetic, present, connected, relational. Anyone who's not present, connected, and relational won't be in mourning because they haven't lost anything, right? You have to be connected. You have to value these things. They're also undefended, and they're also hurtable. We have to be willing to be hurt, to be in connection, and eventually to mourn. Blessed are the gentle. They're surrendered. They're unassuming. They're quiet. They're self-effacing. They're unselfconscious. They're not looking for rec recognition. They're not looking for pats on the back or reward. They just do what they do because it's who they are. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're passionate, they're motivated, they're desirous of always something more, but they're aware and they're watchful at the same time, even as they're longing for the face of that for which they are staying steadfast. Those who are merciful, they're compassionate, they're willing to act, which is huge, but they're also interdependent. They recognize the other as being connected to them and they're forgiving. The pure in heart, those who are conflicted, unconflicted, they're simple. Simplicity is a value for them. They're clear and they're consistent, they're persistent, and they're also vital and they're audacious, which means they're willing to take risks, they're bold. And finally, the peacemaker, they're committed and dedicated and disciplined. They're intense, but they're also unseen, practically invisible, unrewarded, and yet undeterred at the same time. They just continue on. Now, having read through all of those adjectives, how many of them even sound attractive to you? It's because a lot of them don't. If we're really honest, 
that how much or how many of them are really present in your life, even if your mind agrees with some of them. Is your heart really in agreement? Is your unconscious, which really is what drives the bus of our decisions and thoughts and behaviors, is that in line with these? You know, many of us are older now. Let's face it. We've got some exceptions right here. But many of us are older. A lot of us are infirm. The people that we're praying for, so many of us are going through really difficult health issues. And many of us are retiring or are retired. And I've been talking to a lot of you, you know. I'm kind of in anticipatory grief. I'm looking forward to my retirement and what that's going to be like because it is so difficult to suddenly lose everything that your life was about. I mean, how do you really do that? You guys can't even imagine yet what that's going to be like. You do something for 30 or 40 years and then you stop. I mean, who are you then? I was talking to a man um, in, in another state and, and he was telling me, that he has all three of the losses, you know. He, he, he's older, he's infirm, and, and he's retired now, but not by choice. It kind of happened to him. And he's having a really difficult time with all of this. He stated that he, has, he sees no value in his life anymore. He doesn't see how he makes any kind of contribution anymore. He feels like he's completely sidelined. And everything that he used to do that made sense, everything that he was recognized for is just gone. Um... Earlier in life, he built his own business. In fact, he built several businesses, and one of them was especially was quite successful. He also was very studied in theology, and he, was, he rose into church leadership. He was the head of a ministry. He had all this going for him. And then the thing that always happens as you get older happens. You start questioning what you thought you believed, especially in relationship to his church and his theology. And then he started seeing things behind the scenes that really disillusioned him about his church. And it, it led to a break where he had to step down from church and leave the church and everything that he was doing in ministry. And that just broke his heart because that was so much a part, his community and everything that he was about. But it was part of this process of beginning to question everything. It happens later on in life sometimes, even if we're not looking for it or prepared for it. And then he had a... The, the, the difficulties that he had started leading to drinking, and so there was that. And then he had a really bad fall, and that led to a host of physical problems. He ended up losing the business, and because of the drinking, he almost lost his family. All these things are happening. And by the time I'm talking to him, some four or five years later, from you know a lot of the, the break with everything, he was talking about just longing to go back to the good old days, longing to go back to a time when life made sense. And he felt that there was purpose there, something that he was doing. And he talked about, you know, maybe I need to move to a larger town. His town is kind of small. But I moved to Marge, there'll be places where I can volunteer and I can start volunteering again. I could write a book. I could even start a new business. And so he's thinking along the lines of trying to restore everything that he lost. But he's still thinking through that egoic mind. He's still thinking about how to create meaning and purpose out there someplace as if it then can be imported back in. But this is completely counter with, to what Jesus is trying to help us to understand. That was his egoic mind talking. That was himself talking to himself. And that mind, that voice that talks to in our head is never satisfied. Ever. Our security does not come from the accomplishments that we can perform because those accomplishments are meant to separate us from each other 
to stand us up head and shoulders above the crowd that way and we have power over right then we have control if we have possessions then we have control but that separates us one from another when the real security that Jesus is talking about that never leaves us is about losing ourselves in the connection with each other which is going in the exact opposite direction that's what Jesus is trying to get across now I believe in what Jesus is telling me. If I didn't truly believe it, I wouldn't be up here talking to you about it. So, of course, I believe it. And I agree with Jesus' kingdom principles. And I want to live them in my life, and I'm trying to live them in my life. But I'll tell you what, I so resonate with this guy. Don't you? I mean, don't you understand what it is he's feeling? And those of you who are in retirement or early retirement, Are you feeling that longing to go back when the phone was still ringing, maybe, or things were connecting? And I can imagine, as much as I'm trying to prepare myself for a time when I don't have this, I know it's going to be very difficult because so much of my identity is attached to it. But this is where Jesus is trying to take us. It's exactly what Jesus went to the wilderness to consider. When he went to the wilderness, right? He went through all of these same issues and he ultimately extinguished them all to be relevant, to be powerful, to be recognized and acknowledged. Jesus learned to relearn what it meant to be relevant and powerful and significant. He was able to change what he considered significant from what the ego considers significant that performance-based life that separates us from each other to an interior being and presence that connected him to God, that allowed him to say when he came back to his own hometown that he and the Father were one. It connected him to everyone else. Jesus in the wilderness experience was sometimes called the little death, the illusion, right, of the egoic and physical mind's insistence on accomplishment as purpose rather than connection as purpose. Here's the thing that we're all going to have to deal with. In two generations after our death, nobody's going to remember us. Two generations. That's it. That's the limit of the people who really know who we are now as we live. No matter what we do, in two generations, no one's going to remember us. Oh, yeah, we can write a book. Oh, yeah, we can leave a legacy. Oh, yeah, we can be a historical figure. But what are they remembering in two generations? They're remembering the product that you produced and not the person. I like to imagine I know Abraham Lincoln, our most cherished person from history, but how can I know the man? I know what he wrote. I could love the Gettysburg Address. I could love the second inaugural address. And I can read about him, but I don't know him. Nobody does anymore. That is the truth of our lives. So what is our ego clinging to? This desperate scramble for individual identity that we think is going to be our salvation doesn't even exist. Think about it. We don't exist apart from each other. We don't exist apart from God's presence. This sense of individuality that we have is only temporary. It's necessary for our lives here as human beings, but it's an illusion. The truth is, we are all one. 
And Jesus is showing us the way to break through the illusions that our minds naturally present and is showing us the attributes of someone who has seen the truth, who has seen God, has seen the oneness of God in everything. All our anxiety, all our stress, all our regrets are contained in our minds. All we have to do is step outside our minds, which is what contemplation is all about, what Jesus' way is all about. And then we can experience the freedom from illusion. We can experience the freedom of being fully connected to everything that is simply because we're here breathing and for no other reason at all. That's the gift that Jesus wants to give us. But it's going to cost us everything that we think we know and everything to which we cling in order to be ready to receive that gift. Let's pray. Father, this is tough stuff. This is so hard for us to conceive, so hard for us to process. But it's also beautiful stuff. It is the most encouraging thing that could be said to a human being that we don't have to live in stress and anxiety and fear. We don't have to live imagining that we are separated from everyone and everyone else, everything else, that we are alone because we are not alone. We are connected. We are one. Help us to break through. Help us to have that benevolent mental breakdown where we lose our sense of self even for just moments at a time and realize this life of connection, this life of kingdom is possible for us right here and right now. Help us, Father. We need your help. We love you and we long for deeper connection with you and with each other. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.